Praise the Lord. But the title of this talk, Wise Men Seek Jesus. Um, wise men and women will be seeking Jesus in this coming year. And we see so many things coming upon us in the world which are, could be troubling, frightening even, which remind us of the second coming of Jesus, the Messiah. And it's a time when we should be seeking Jesus for the way forward for ourselves, for our nation, and for Israel, and for the whole world. And we know that actually the only one who has the answer to the issues which are coming on the world today are, is Jesus. Uh, I think there's going to be elections in uh, about half of the major countries in the world this year. How much faith do you have that those who are elected will be able to sort out the situations in the world? But the only one who can sort it out is Yeshua, Jesus, coming back. And as we look at Israel, we look at state of our own nation, David's already reminded us from talk at uh, intercessors of Britain just how far this nation and, and even the church has gone from serving the Lord, how much we do need to seek the Lord. And if we seek the Lord, then we can find him because he came in the person of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. And we're going to start looking at the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that he fulfilled prophecy. Uh, he fulfilled prophecies about the Messiah. And there's no one else who has done this. I don't know if you realize this, but uh, Jesus is quite unique in the fact that there are so many prophecies speaking about his first coming and about his second coming. And that he's fulfilled all of the first coming ones and he's going to fulfill the second coming ones in his own time, which may be quite soon. And the details of his life were written centuries before it happened. And this is because God knows the end from the beginning. God knew that sin was going to come into the world through the disobedience Adam and Eve in the garden knew that sin would come into the world and that people would need a redeemer, someone who paid the price for their sins, someone who died as a sacrifice for the sin of the world uh, in the person of Yeshua, the Messiah. And he's the Messiah who was prophesied from the beginning to be the saviour, to be the seed of the woman, to be born to a virgin, to be born in Bethlehem, born at the right time. Uh, some people object that Christians read into Old Testament prophecies what they want to read in order to justify their interpretation about Jesus. But you can find even from Jewish sources themselves that these prophecies were held to be about the Messiah and that they should have been fulfilled round about the time when they were fulfilled. So let's have a look at the place of Bethlehem, first of all. Read in the scriptures just now that uh, when he, Herod, had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Messiah the Christ was to be born. So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah, not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, they understood from the scriptures that the place where the Messiah was to be born was Bethlehem. Bethlehem, a place which appears several times in the Hebrew scriptures, a place where Rachel died giving birth to her second son, Benjamin in Genesis 35, a place which became known as a place of sorrow. I wanted to call him Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. But she ended up calling him, uh, Jacob ended up calling him Ben-Yamin, son of my right hand. But a place of sorrow and a place of birth. A place also where the story of Ruth is played out, uh, which records the marriage of Boaz and Ruth, the ancestors of David. A place where this Gentile woman, Moabitess, Ruth was redeemed and brought into the house of Israel by the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, and became an ancestress of King David and therefore of the Messiah. 
There was a place where their grandson Jesse lived and had eight sons, the youngest of whom who was David, whom Samuel anointed as king in place of Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 16. So if you think about it, it's associated with the high points of life, death, birth, marriage, and also the place of the anointing of God's, Israel's greatest king, David, who was a type of the Messiah himself, and from whom the Messiah was to be descended in his line. So let's have a look at Micah's prophecy again. In Micah's prophecy, uh, this passage in Matthew is the uh, <coughs> original verses in, Ma- in Micah chapter 5, where it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Interesting that uh, Micah supplies two bits of information which are not there in Matthew's uh, gospel. It says his origins, his goings forth, where he came from, are from of old and from everlasting. From of old in Hebrew is mikadem. Literally means from the east, but it also means from the place of arising, from the origins. Me'olam, from everlasting. Uh, From everlasting, whose origins are from everlasting? Only God. So this script is indicating to us that the one to be born in Bethlehem is not just another uh, baby to be born. He is actually the Messiah. He's God, Emmanuel, God with us, coming into the world. Interesting, actually, that Jewish sources acknowledge this. Uh, there's a writing in, Hebrew, in Judaism called the Targum, which is a paraphrase of the scriptures, not written by believers in Jesus. It's a paraphrase of the scriptures, which they... Uh, reads on this verse as follows, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, you who are too small to be numbered among the thousands of the house of Judah, from you shall come forth before me the Messiah to exercise dominion over Israel, he whose name was mentioned from before, from the days of creation. If you understand things about Judaism, that's very significant because it's saying there that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem and is the fulfillment of this prophecy in, in Micah. It's a famous commentator in Judaism called Rashi, who says about Micah 5, You, Bethlehem Ephrata, when David emanated, you should have been the lowest of the clans of Israel, of Judah, because of the stigma of Ruth the Moabites. From you shall emerge from me the Messiah, the son of David, his origin is of old. So there's an agreement there that the prophecy of Micah is about the Messiah. And when you come to the New Testament, clearly it's pointing to the Messiah, Yeshua. And as I said, he came from Mikadem, from the east, from the sunrise, from the early times, from old, came from the days of eternity, Nimei Olam, from ancient times or from the days of eternity. And the only one who comes from the days of eternity is God. In Hebrews, in Psalm 90, verse 2, it says that God exists, Me'olam Be'adolam, from eternity to eternity. So this is another indication of the divine nature of the Messiah, that he is God coming to the earth in order to redeem us. And the prophecy of Micah is telling us that the one who has his birth in Bethlehem has his origins in eternity. And only God has his origins in eternity. So that raises a very interesting possibility. And when you look to what the New Testament tells us about Jesus, it confirms this. Uh, In John's introduction to his gospel, which speaks about the origins of Jesus, of the word, as he says, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. <clears throat> so who made every, the one who made everything, who was not made himself, was there in the beginning with God and was God. And John goes on to tell us that the one he's speaking about, the word, is Jesus, the word made flesh, who dwelt amongst us. John chapter 17, just before he crucifixion, Jesus prays to the Father, and he says, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In other words, Jesus is saying, I was there with God before the world was. I was pre-existent. I've always been there with God, and I became man and dwelt amongst you. He goes on in verse 24 to say, Father, I desire that they also, who you, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So again, pointing to the pre-existence of the Messiah, being with God in glory, and coming to the earth, and reminding us what a tremendous sacrifice it was for Jesus, not just to die on the cross, but even to come here in the first place, to leave the glories of heaven come to this sin-cursed earth in order to redeem people like you and me to bring us into the family of God so that we can have eternal life and faith through faith in Jesus. And Paul commenting on this, he says, for him, in Colossians 1:16, for him, by him all things were made, were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus was the one who was there at creation through whom everything came into being. That's why he's such an amazing saviour. Okay, so let's get back to the text of Matthew and see what we can learn from it. First of all, who were the wise men? Uh, the first verse says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Uh, this event was not necessarily at the same time as the birth of Jesus. Often you have the shepherds and the wise men coming together. Uh, it's quite possible it may have been later, even up to a year or two years later. Um, we read that Herod ordered the killing of the baby boys under two years old. So it could be up to two years later. We don't know. It does say in verse 11 that Mary and Joseph are now living in a house. Uh, so maybe there has been some change. Not necessarily that there were three of them, though the carol does say we three kings of Orient are, but they did bring three gifts. May not have brought one each, but they brought them, and it doesn't say they were kings either. Uh, the text called them Magoi, which means wise men or astrologers. And they came from the east. Again, that phrase which I've already mentioned, Mikadem, from the east word which is associated with the coming of the Messiah in, Math in Micah chapter 5. And the east is associated with origins, with the sunrise. In Bible terms, the east also means Babylonia. And the Babylonians used the stars for signs in the sky. They mapped out the spirits, the uh, maps of the stars in the constellations, what we call the zodiac. Uh, the zodiac can be misused in astrology, but it also, some people have said, it does point to the message of God in the stars. And there's a book which I've got at home called God in the Stars, which says how the message of the Zodiac actually can speak of the death and resurrection of Jesus. I won't go into that now, but it's an interesting subject. And we have to recognize that the ancient world was much closer to the stars than we are. They used them to navigate the sea, to navigate the desert. And they saw significance in the changes in the stars. 
So the, the Babylonians, they were astrologers, they looked to astronomers, they looked at the stars, and they drew conclusions from them. So what was this star? Was it uh, really a star? We know there was a conjunction of Jupiter and Venus coming together, appearing as one very bright star in the sky around 3 BC. They've worked that out. That could have been the star that set them off. Nevertheless, when you look at the text, it says that it's not a star in the normal sense of the word. It's referred to as his star, i.e. the king of the Jews' star. The star appears and disappears. It moves from east to west. And it moves from north to south, going from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And then it hovers over a house in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem. If it was a real star hovering over a house in Bethlehem, it would have burned up the house, Bethlehem, and the planet underneath it. So there's a question whether it was actually referring to something else. The root meaning of the Greek word for a star is, means radiance or brilliance, something bright, shining. And Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his book suggests that the star was actually the appearance of the Shekinah glory, a visible manifestation of God's presence, appearing in the form of light in the sky, which would be considered to be a star. See, also in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, it says that angels are referred to as stars. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches in Revelation 1, verse 20. So a star is not necessarily, therefore, a heavenly body in what we understand it as a star, but a visible manifestation of God's presence, or an angel. So why would the wise men follow a star? That's the next question. I mean... They're living in Babylon, why would they connect this star with something to do with a king being born in Israel and Bethlehem? Why would they make the connection? Why would they make the connection with the Jewish king? Why would they make a long and difficult journey to worship such a one? And why would they bring these three particular gifts? Now, some people like to relegate the whole thing to mythology. But if you look at it from the point of view of a believer, which... I am, and which hopefully you are, in the word of God, there's something which God is trying to tell us through this. First of all, they came from the east. As I said, they came from, most likely, from the area of Babylon. Babylon, which was a great city right back in the very beginning. A city associated often with evil, with bad religion, but also a place where civilization actually grew up in the area of the two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, and what is now modern Iraq. And the Old Testament records that revelation was given, first of all, to Abraham in that area to get out of his country and to move to the promised land. We see also that in the Hebrew scriptures that God is able to speak not just through to Abraham and his descendants through the scriptures, but also he did speak on occasions to Gentiles, non-believers, non people who didn't know about the God of Israel, and yet God revealed things to them. There are a number of scriptures which tell you that. Speak about Melchizedek. It brought bread and wine to Abraham, who's described as a priest of the Most High God in Genesis chapter 15. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, who brought out bread and wine, he was a priest of the Most High God. You've got Jethro, priest of Midian, who offered sacrifices to the Lord, who encouraged Moses in his ministry and gave him good advice from the Lord. After the Exodus, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians out of the hand of Pharaoh, who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. For in this very thing in which they behave proudly, he was above them all. 
Just think of the Queen of Sheba, who heard of the wisdom of Solomon and said when she visited him, Blessed be the Lord God, Lord your God, who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. And you could think of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, who through the miracles which Daniel and his friends did, was humbled by the Lord, came to believe in the God of Israel. And in Daniel chapter 4, we read, At the end of my time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honoured him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. So God's able to communicate with Jews and with Gentiles. And he communicates on occasions with significant Gentiles who come to faith in the God of Israel. And you could say that these wise men in Babylon were people who were looking for the true God and God revealed something very precious and very important to them and sent them on their journey to find the one whose sign they saw in this star which led them to the stable in Bethlehem. <coughs> now, Arnold Fruchtemeyer has written an interesting book and uh, it's called Messianic Christology. And he puts forward a view about these wise men which I find quite fascinating. He says that the wise men or the Magi from Beth Beth Babylon would be students of history and of prophecy, especially any prophecy which originated in the area of Babylon. Coming from Babylon, they'd be familiar with the writings of Daniel. And I'll just read what he says about this. From the New Testament account, all we can deduce is the fact that Gentile Babylonian astrologers somehow knew that the birth of the king of the Jews had taken place by means of a star like shining brilliance in the heavens that moved from east to west and from north to south and hovered over the very house where Jesus was. To explain this, we must look into the Old Testament. To begin with, we must note that the only place in the entire Old Testament that dates Messiah's first coming is the famous 77s or 70 weeks of years of Daniel found in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. Besides this, the book of Daniel was not written in Israel, but in the city of Babylon, with much of it in Aramaic, the language of the Babylonian Empire. So it was in that city of Babylon a book was written that prophesied when the Messiah would come. That's not all. Daniel was always associated with the Babylonian astrologers. Since Nebuchadnezzar did not have much spiritual discernment, he did not realize that the source of Daniel's ability was not the stars of the heavens, but the God of heaven. Nevertheless, Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel the head of all the astrologers of Babylon. The day came when Daniel was able to save the lives of all the Babylonian astrologers. Nebuchadnezzar had an unusual dream. When the astrologers were able to unable to interpret his dream, he sentenced every one of them to death, to execution. Among the ones arrested was Daniel and his three friends, because from the viewpoint of the Babylonians, these four Hebrews were part of the Babylonian school of astrology, therefore to be executed. But Daniel requested an audience with the king, and he received it. After he received the audience with the king, Daniel did interpret the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. When he interpreted that dream, he saved the lives of all the other astrologers. In fact, this is the way that they, he became the head of the Babylonian school of astrology. As a result, there is no doubt that many of these astrologers turned away from the worship of the stars and the practice of astrology and began worshipping the God of Israel. 
It was in this environment and in this company that Daniel penned his book, Revealing the Time of the Messiah's Coming. Hence, a line of Babylonian astrologers from generation to generation worshipped the true God and having Daniel's prophecy looked forward to the coming of the King of the Jews. From the book of Daniel, then, we can conclude that the Babylonian astrologers did not know, did know at about what time Messiah was to be born. However, the book of Daniel says nothing about a star that would in some way announce Messiah's birth. How then did the astrologers know anything about the star? Okay, so they were looking and they saw this star coming and they also connected it with the coming, the time when the Messiah was supposed to arrive. So what about the star? What about Balaam and the star? Now, interestingly, there's an earlier connection with the Babylonian astrologers in the book of Numbers. King Balak of Moab hired a prophet called Balaam to curse Israel as they were coming into the land. You can read about that in the book of Numbers. Balaam came from Pethor, a city on the banks of the Euphrates in Babylonia. It tells you that in Numbers 22, verse 5. He was another non-Jew who heard from God and got revelation from him although he didn't always use it wisely, but he used it unwisely. And he was hired to curse Israel. But as he cursed Israel, his words turned into a blessing. And his prophecies can turn this very significant message, which is a message to the uh, reference to the coming of the Messiah, which speaks of a star that should come forth from Jacob. So in Numbers 24, verse 17, it says... Balaam, he took up his oracle and said, the utterances of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with his eyes wide open, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall arise out of Israel. So the Babylonians would have preserved that prophecy. It would have come from one of their own. And if you have, think that there was this school of, I call them astrologers, um, I don't mean that they were looking necessarily into astrology. They were looking into some kind of way to determine the will of God. And they preserved all these prophecies and treated them with respect. So when these astrologers saw this star at the right time, According to Daniel's prophecy, they concluded that, the start, that this was the fulfillment of the prophecy, that the Messiah was coming. And God would have revealed this by the Holy Spirit to them, and therefore he led them on the way to find the king of the Jews. It was the right star coming at the right time and pointing them in the right direction, towards Judea, towards Bethlehem, near to Jerusalem. In case you're troubled, this does not justify astrology as a means of knowing the future, uh, in this case, God overruled pagan religious systems to impart wisdom by his word concerning the Messiah. So a little bit of explanation where the, th the three kings come from. So what about their three gifts? We all know they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. Was there a significance in those gifts? Well, gold is a symbol of royalty, emphasizing that Jesus is a king. Frankincense is a symbol of deity because it's part of the special scent burnt on the altar of incense within the holy place 
which penetrated into the Holy of Holies itself. It's a symbol of deity. And myrrh is associated with death and embalmment, with suffering and with death and embalmment. And if you think about the carol, We Three, Three Kings of Orient are, it brings out all those things. Should have actually got you to sing that, but uh, you know the words which speak about Jesus being sealed in a, a stone-cold tomb. Myrrh is bitter perfume. And all these things are pointing forward to the death of Jesus. And it's amazing that at the point of the birth, you have a reference to his death uh, in the gift of the myrrh, but also to his royalty, that he is the king of the Jews, and also to his deity, that he is God most high, become man. And the first line of the carol, we three kings of Orient are, may not be biblically totally accurate, but the last line certainly is, which speaks about him being God and king and sacrifice. And that's who our Lord is. And it's amazing that God actually had this arranged so that there would be this reception committee to Jesus which would point to who he is, what he's about to do, and by his nature. And interestingly, the shepherds also were the same. The shepherds were the shepherds who would be offering the lambs for the Passover sacrifice, and they brought a lamb to Jesus, speaking of his sacrifice and his death and his resurrection. It was all ready, and... Also, practically, with these gifts, the family of Joseph and Mary were able to escape to Egypt and live there for approximately two years until the death of Herod the Great. Now, we know the story. It's said to us that Herod was curious about this, and he said that he wanted to go and worship the king, worship this newborn king. But, of course, he was being totally hypocritical. That was the very last thing he wanted to do. And the wise men, when they arrived in, Beth- in Jerusalem, the capital of thought that they would find information about the new king in the king's palace, and they went to ask about it from Herod. This was actually bad news to Herod, because the one thing he was fearing was a Messiah coming to knock him out of his position. And he assembled the Jewish priests and scribes who correctly located the birthplace of the Messiah as Bethlehem. And another indication that this was a common belief at the time that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. So once the question was asked, he asked the religious leaders, where is he going to be born? Bethlehem. And also he noticed that it connects this king that they were looking for with the Messiah. The Messiah who was Yeshua. In the text we read how Herod hypocritically asked them to tell him the place where the child was in order that he might come and worship him. His real intention was to kill him. And the wise men were warned of this in a dream as Joseph was instructed to take the child to Egypt. And Herod actually acted very much in character in killing the baby boys in Bethlehem. Herod ruled as king of the Jews from 37 BC. He was a very wicked and evil man. He was not a Jew, he was an Edomite. He exalted himself. He uh, killed many people, including priests, including his own family. Uh, He killed his own wife. Uh, He murdered his children. Caesar Augustus, who was his friend, said of Herod, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son, uh, because his pig would have less chance of being killed than his son would. Uh, He had his own group of followers who called called Herodians, who counted him as some kind of a Messiah figure. And Herod was the one who was troubled by these things. And when he heard that he'd been let down by the wise men, 
he was exceeding wrath and issued his atrocious decree to go forth and kill the baby boys in Bethlehem. Herod died about one year after the massacre of, in Bethlehem. He died lonely and hated by everyone. He butchered his own family and nation for gain. He died the most horrible afflictions and diseases which could not be retarded or alleviated at all. He died in abuse of, combi of a combination of rage and fear. Josephus says in paroxysms of fury. He died one year after having slain the babies of Bethlehem as God brought judgment upon him. You could say that this was a satanic attempt to kill Jesus at birth, to prevent him from actually getting, even beginning his ministry. Brought about through the wicked Herod. And we see also that God provided deliverance and escape for the family in their flight to Egypt, from where they'd be called out to return to Judea, and then to Galilee and to Nazareth. Now, just in conclusion, there are four uses of prophecy in this chapter in, Daniel, in, in Matthew, chapter 2. Remember that Matthew's gospel is the one which is most concerned to fix Jesus as the Messiah and the King of Israel, and he makes the most use of messianic prophecy, quoting from the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, in this chapter, prophecy is used in four different ways. You have the prophecy of Micah of Matthew chapter 2, speaking about the birth in Bethlehem. This is a literal prophecy with a literal fulfillment. Scriptures from, Beth from Micah, it was literally fulfilled once and only once in the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, and it has no other application. That's probably the most common use of prophecy, a literal prophecy, a literal event being taking place. You then have a prophecy in which it says that out of Egypt I've called my son. This is a literal prophecy plus what we call typology. If you look up the original, the original verse in the Old Testament in Hosea chapter 11, it's not actually a prophecy. It's speaking of a historical event, the calling of Israel out of Egypt to be the son of God. The Old Testament event then becomes a type of the New Testament event which is the calling of the ideal son of God, Jesus the Messiah, out of Egypt. And down to Egypt and he was called out of Egypt. Because of the flight to Egypt, Jesus had to come back into the land of Israel by being called by God through the word to Joseph. Note, by the way, he was not told to go to the land of Palestine. He was told to go to the land of Egypt, uh, land of Israel. Now, typolo typologically... Uh, do you understand what I mean by typologically? It's, it's a picture you have in the Old Testament which is somehow revealed in the New Testament. Coming out of Egypt, coming out of the Exodus, through the Exodus is coming out of bondage, coming out of sin into the promised land. And Jesus came out of Egypt into the promised land. And as we believe in Jesus, we also come out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of sin, into the promised land, into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So that's a literal prophecy which is fulfilled uh, in a way not as typology of coming out of Egypt, speaking of both Jesus coming out of Egypt physically, but also us coming out of Egypt spiritually, coming out of bondage into the place of freedom of faith in Jesus. Okay, the third one, uh, literal 
plus application. Matthew 2, verse 17 and 18 <coughs> fulfills Jeremiah chapter 31. This verse we read after the massacre in Bethlehem. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Speaking now about the mothers of Bethlehem who are mourning because their children have been killed in this horrible way by Herod. Uh, in one sense, you could say they were the first victims of Jesus coming into the world uh, because they innocent, but they died uh, in place of Jesus as he was taken away. But in the context of Jeremiah, first chapter 31, you find that this prophecy is speaking of the event which was soon to come in Jeremiah's day of the Jewish people being taken into captivity. And as they were taken into captivity, they passed by a place called Ramah, which is where Rachel is buried. And Rachel is a symbol of Jewish motherhood and she wept over the birth of her son as it took her life as she passed by Bethlehem. The time of the Babylonian captivity, the Jewish mothers wept for their sons who would, they would see no more. The time of Herod's slaughter of the innocents, the Jewish mothers would weep, again weep for their sons who they would see no more. This was not a literal fulfillment of prophecy, nor a type of the prophesied event, but an application because of the similarity to the event. So Daniel, uh, Matthew is rooting this scripture, his, his gospel in the Hebrew scriptures and showing the connection to Jesus. And finally, you have the last verse. We see uh, when they come out of Egypt, they're told not to go to Judea, but to go to the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So they don't go to Bethlehem, but they go back to Nazareth. Now, particularly Jewish critics of the New Testament are quick to point out that there is no Old Testament scripture which says he shall be called a Nazarene. So Matthew must have got it wrong. But Matthew didn't get it wrong because he was using a device which is always used in elsewhere in, in Jewish writings, actually, of summarizing what the prophet said. And the clue to the verse actually is in the phrase, as was spoken by the prophets. So Matthew is not quoting but summarizing what the prophet said, saying he should be called a Nazarene. Now in the days of Jesus, Nazarenes or people from Nazareth were actually pretty low down on the social order. In fact, they were pretty much despised. You have an indication of this in John chapter 1 where Philip finds Nathanael uh, and says to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So the expectation that the Messiah would come out of Nazareth was not there. Messiah was supposed to come out of Bethlehem. In fact, later on in John's gospel, it tells you that one of the disputes which the uh, opposition had with Jesus was they said well he can't be the Messiah because he comes from Nazareth the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem well he was born in Bethlehem but he was known as Jesus of Nazareth 
And the prophet said that the Messiah was going to be despised and rejected. Therefore, by calling him a Nazarene, Matthew is actually summarizing the words of the prophets without actually specifically quoting them. There's another important point that the Hebrew for Nazareth, in Hebrew is Natsret, which is taken from the Hebrew word Natser, which means a root, which is used in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. Isaiah 11 verse 1 says, And there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch, Natser, shall grow out of his roots. So the Natser speaks of the, the, the branch of Isaiah chapter 11, and is another example of why Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. And why this, pro this prophecy, he shall be called a Nazarene, makes sense. So, just to conclude, Jesus came in fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Everything which you read in the scriptures concerning Jesus is somewhere in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures. Therefore, he is the Messiah of whom Moses and the prophets spoke. He's the Messiah who came the first time to suffer and to die as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. We have indications of this in the birth stories of the Messiah, and we have the outworking of it in the events which follow that, the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. He came as the promised Messiah, fulfilling scripture. He's also the mighty God. He's also the Savior. He was greeted by shepherds and wise men, and wise men and women still seek him for their salvation. Do you seek him for your salvation? If you do, then you've found the pearl of great price. And he'll be with you always, even to the end of this world. And speaking of the end of the world, we're living in the time when prophecies of the second coming of Jesus are being fulfilled. These events in Israel, Gaza, very sad, but they're also pushing the world in the direction of the final conflict over Israel and over Jerusalem. Events taking place in our part of the world are also very sad as we see the falling away from the truth in the church. We see all the strife and conflict uh, around the world. All of these things are prophesied in the Bible before the days of the second coming of Jesus. Some things you can't stop. You can pray about them, you can pray into them, and you can proclaim the good news of Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, but you're not going to stop them happening because God says they're going to happen before Jesus returns. And certainly we can't stop Jesus from returning. Satan tried to destroy him through Herod when he came the first time. He's got all sorts of plans to try to stop him from coming the second time, but he will fail because Jesus is going to come in power and great glory this time to judge the world in righteousness according to how we have responded to the message of the gospel. So just to say again, wise men and wise women still seek Jesus for their salvation. Amen. So let's... Uh, a word of prayer, then we'll sing our final hymn. Lord, we do thank you for the way you did come in fulfillment of prophecy. Thank you that you are the promised Messiah, that you are Emmanuel, God with us, that you came at the right time, in the right place, in the right way. And we thank you, Lord, that we can afford you coming again a second time, this time in power and glory, to judge the world in righteousness. Meantime, Lord, we pray you help us to redeem the time that remains, to use our lives to your praise and glory, to follow you, 
and to speak to others of the message of hope in Jesus the Messiah. As we seek you for our salvation, and we pray for the salvation of our friends, our families, our loved ones, that they may come to believe in Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. Amen.